Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday to all of you. Can you believe it is already September? It is hard to imagine we are we are drifting quickly <laughs> toward the holidays already. It's crazy. Uh, and I want to thank you for joining me for this live stream. I trust that by God's grace, you and your family are staying well. I am really excited to bring this very, what I consider to be an important conversation to you tonight about the rise of the global South. And that might be a new term for many of you, um, but it's looking at those countries in Africa and Southern Asia, Southern Asia, that are really playing a role in helping to preserve the historic Christian faith while we are in uh, a season of human history where the West seems to be going crazy. <laughs> and so um, I want to highlight some things that are happening more globally. That's something I like to do from time to time on the podcast to, to remind us and to check in like, oh yeah, Christianity, it's not just an American religion. It's a global religion and it always has been since Pentecost. Now with that, I'm going to introduce my guest for today's discussion. I'm going to be talking to Reverend George Conger. He is a priest in the Episcopal Church in Central Florida. It's kind of a more um, rural area of Florida. And just in case there is a discernment blogger trolling me right now, and you're wondering, you know, whether I've gone progressive because I'm having an actual Episcopalian priest on my show, let me assure you that um, Reverend Conger is one of the few remaining uh, biblically faithful priests in the Episcopal Church. Uh, he is an advocate for traditional Christianity, and he is also the um, co-host of the Anglican Unscripted podcast. Reverend Conger is an amazing resource. He's been reporting on Anglican issues for over two decades. Um, so I'm looking forward to introducing you to him. I think you're going to really appreciate and enjoy him. And with that, here's the first half of my discussion with Father George Conger. And I'll be back in just a few minutes to interact with you and address your questions. So here we go. I'm excited to talk to George Conger today. He is a priest in the Episcopal Church Um slugging it out for the gospel there in central Florida. I just want to say thank you. It's an honor to talk to you today. You've been so helpful to me in my personal life and um, our family. And it's just an honor to be able to talk to you today. I know that you um, are going to be new for my listeners. So maybe give us kind of the one minute introduction about you and, and, um, just to, to give us a little background on your on your history. Well, I've been an Episcopal priest for 27 years, um, and I've been in the parish ministry. I've been a hospice chaplain. I've been a chaplain at a college at Oxford, England. Uh, before I went into the ministry, I worked as an investment banker in New York. And while I was getting a, a doctorate, I worked as a correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. And in, and in addition to my parish work, where I've been in, currently at the, the rector or senior pastor at a church in Lakanto, Florida, which we like to call Hooterville, we're about midway between Tampa and Ocala on the Florida's uh, west coast. So that's very, a bit about me and my background. Very good. And you also co-host a little podcast called Anglican Unscripted and, and uh, have a background in journalism and write on issues related to the Anglican communion as well over at Anglican Inc. I, I've written for all of the major new uh, Washington Post, the Guardian, Telegraph Times. I've been able to supplement uh, my 
my income in my parish work for the last 25 years as being a journalist. But I, could, but I identify myself as a priest who has a hobby scribbling. Okay, very good. So um, I'm, we're going to be talking in this uh, discussion about some recent events happening in the Anglican Communion, um, particularly what's happening uh, in the global South. But I want to first do some setup because um, we're going to have to give people a little backstory here and, and take them back to the late uh, 1990s, because there's probably 10 listeners on this podcast right now who are Anglicans and even fewer who know about uh, Lambeth or Lambeth 110. So let's give them a little bit of a, a let's have a little story time Take us back to the late 1990s and give us a little bit of a, of a backstory of what happened back then. And then we'll fast forward to um, today. Well, in the late 1990s, we were about 30 years into the civil war within the Anglican world. It really began in the 1960s. And it began when bishops in the United States began to pursue a very non-traditional way of understanding Christianity, uh, questioning some of the basic doctrines and tenets. And, and there was no accountability for the bishops. They just sort of let bygones be bygones. Nobody will follow them. And then we had a series of sort of crises internally within the church, the civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam. Then in the 70s, the ordination of women divorce and remarriage. By the time we got to the 90s, the church was dividing into liberal and conservative camps. And in the 1990s, the issue, presenting issue, became homosexual relations. The church has always taught that those who have inclinations or attractions to people of the same sex are loved by God, but the church considered that homosexual relations, as Paul states quite clearly, are contrary to God's will. Well, in the late 1990s, we began a fight over that, and it was brought to a gathering called the Lambeth Conference. Every 10 years, all of the Anglican bishops from around the world gather in Canterbury, England, and there they basically have a, a convention of sorts where they discuss issues that are rising and pressing at the life of the church. 20 years earlier had been women priests. Uh, 30 years earlier had been uh, the African uh, liberation movements, Rhodesia, so on and so forth, things that were pressing. And in 1998, the bishops came up with a statement on human sexuality. And they came up, and the statement said that uh, those with homosexual inclinations are loved by God, but we cannot uh, contemplate blessing same-sex unions, uh, allowing non-celibate homosexuals to become members of the ministry, uh, because it is contrary to God's word as contained in scripture. At that meeting, there were about 700 bishops, and they voted roughly uh, close to 600 to in favor of the traditional view and 70 in favor of a liberalizing view. And that sort of cracked open the door because within five years, the Episcopal Church had its first partnered homosexual bishop, a man named Gene Robinson. And then began the wars between different churches, national churches between the American church and the West Indians and the Nigerians and the Kenyans and the Church of England and so on and so forth. And we took it all the way up to this July when we had another Lambeth conference and the Archbishop of Canterbury essentially said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. We'll just let both positions stand, which is untenable for those who believe that the Bible is God's word. Yeah. Now I want to get into that. Um, I'm wondering if you can even take us back to that decision and we're the, that decision that you talked about in the late nineties is called Lambeth 110. If people uh -huh. want to look it up um, and I've read through it uh, and it seems like 
based on the wording, there was some wording of kind of the minority position was wanting to be what we call now, you know, the, the affirming position. You were there. Um, I think you were acting as kind of a secretary um, during that. I actually meeting. was the typist. You uh, were the typist, okay. I was and, the typist uh, that uh, typed up this agreement. Uh, for instance, the and I put in my little two cents, for instance, uh, the bishops wanted to con condemn homophobia. And I paused and said, well, can you think of a better word? Because in America, homophobia means anybody who disagrees with the positions of the gay activists. So you would be considered homophobes by the liberals in the United States. So it was changed to a very awkward, unreasonable fear of uh, homosexuals. Uh, in other words, you, you shouldn't uh, condemn them outright. It, it was a very strong conservative statement in the sense that it relied upon the Bible, where God, we're all sinners, including those with homosexual attractions. However, if you repent and if you allow the Holy Spirit to be at, at one with your will, God will help you through that. So there was a statement about, you know, you can pray with people who have same-sex attractions, and that is a valid, important way to reach out to them. Today, that's considered very controversial because that's right. conversion therapy. You can, uh, the, the church should not marry people of the same sex. And this was overwhelmingly the position of the church. Now, the problem was not so much doctrine, but politics. Because, well, there are more Anglicans in church on Sunday in Nigeria than if you add up all the Anglicans in the traditional white Anglican countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, America. In other words, the vast majority of active Christian Anglicans live in Africa and in Asia. They don't live in the United States anymore. Whereas at the beginning of the last century, 1900 to 20th century, the vast majority were people who looked like me and sounded like me. Now I'm in the minority. So the, as- so when, so when you were in the room, it sounds like the majority opinion at that time was still affirming the traditional historic biblical Without view. Question. Without question. Okay. Without question. And when they had the actual vote, I was, I was there. And they had a series of amendments that the liberal bloc brought in. And my bishop at the time was a man named John Howe, who was a stalwart evangelical conservative. Uh, he voted one way, and seated in front of him was the Episcopal Bishop of Long Island. And the Bishop of Long Island voted the other way until they got to the final vote. And the final vote, the Bishop of Long Island, who one who spoke out strongly for uh, normalizing homosexuality, uh, voted with the conservatives. And my bishop leaned over and asked him, you know, why did you do this? He said, well, at the end, I believe unity is more important that mm -hmm. we as a church speak as one. That understanding of what we call the Catholic faith, the small c, uh, not Roman Catholic, but universal faith, where people would hold back on their cherished beliefs in deference to the majority, that's collapsed over the last 20, 30 years. And the still overwhelming majority of bishops, let's say two thirds, uh, would hold to what was uh, decided in 1998. But in the United States and in Canada and places like that in England, the mood has changed where we do not where we need to put justice rather than doctrine and discipline and scripture in first place so was the thought at that time looking back like well the advocacy of homosexuality and gay marriage was the thought at that time well look there's still a majority of people in the room that hold to the traditional view was there a thought that this could still be scaled back, that 
that, you know, hey, this is this is a matter of like debate. We're going to put together some study committees. We're going to figure this out. Was it sort of assumed that the traditional position would stay in the majority? Was that sort of the hope at that time? Yes, it was quite clear that the, the issue was raised and it was discussed. Uh, I'm sorry, I've got a dog. That's okay. Yeah, let me take what he's chewing away from him. Oh. My apologies. He's just eaten half of my prayer and praise music for this weekend. No problem. So I'll have to redo that. Oh, my. Could you ask the question again, please? Absolutely. Yeah. So back in the 90s, you know, it seems like the majority position was still the traditional position. Was there a thought at that point that, hey, if we just put together a study committee, we get everybody in the room, we have a Bible study, we look at tradition, um, that the question about homosexuality could get settled and that it would eventually be scaled back? Or was there a thought of, you know, no, the traditional position, we can see that this is waning and eventually we, we might not be in the majority anymore. What, what, what was the thought back then? Well, the thought depended upon where you were from in the world. Hmm. If you were an African, uh, I'll, I'll give you a vignette from the most recent con con uh, conference that ended in July. Uh, the bishops were seated at tables of eight to ten where they had their small group conversations. And I chatted with a Sudanese, South Sudanese bishop, a man whose diocese is on the banks of the Blue Nile, uh, one of the poorest places on the earth. And he was seated next to an Australian bishop who had a diocese in the suburbs of Melbourne. And the bishop, of, the bishop in this uh, diocese said, I may be the last bishop of my diocese because we're losing so many people and secularism is gaining such a hold, they may just sort of merge me, my diocese, out of existence when I retire. And for the South Sudanese bishop, this was inconceivable because the growth of the church is exponential. Uh, they go into a place where the people are traditional animists or maybe Muslims, and they share the good news of Jesus Christ, and they see healings they see lives change it's acts of the apostles type christianity and for many places in africa and india and asia and in the mountains of peru the church is growing without any sense that this is even an issue or question because it's settled it's in scripture and it's as plain as plain can be there's no way you can fiddle what paul wrote and, you know, how Jesus came not to uh, destroy the law, but to complete and to fulfill the law. And the Old Testament law is quite clear on this. So for those from what I would call the global south, they thought this is once and done. Whereas those of us from the United States or Europe or Australia, well, we were a little fearful because we know they wouldn't give up. That they would just keep coming and coming and coming. And that's what has happened. As bishops retire, um, new bishops are elected, and we have the, well, we don't want an extremist on either side, so let's, let's elect somebody who can be happy with both sides. Well, when that happens, of course, what you have is the gradual drift. Where orthodoxy becomes optional, it will soon become illegal. And that's what's happening in the American Episcopal Church. So I'm, I'm in a diocese of central Florida, which is the area basically north and south of Orlando until you get to the coast. And we uphold all these traditional teachings that the vast majority of Christians around the world do. But should I drive down to Miami, I'd be in a very different Episcopal church. Yeah. So it sounds like the conservatives were not able to push back effectively. And so there was kind of the, what you're living in now in the Episcopal church is the long-term result of like, well, when new bishops come up, well, we won't get a strong conservative, but we won't get an extremist liberal either, but we'll just keep kind of having this middle of the road position, but it, eventually it just kind of keeps drifting leftward, yeah. it 
that is that kind of what happened? That plus over 700 conservative clergy were expelled from the Episcopal Church. And that that and that create and that led to the formation of the Anglican Church in North America, where there are two expressions of Anglicanism, uh, the Episcopal Church and the shorthand ACNA. The ACNA is comprised of those clergy who were expelled and bishops and and. If you were in a place uh, where I it, it it was geographically driven, where you had a conservative bishop and a conservative diocese, where the vast majority of laying lay people and clergy upheld the traditional teachings, there was no real split or schism. If you were a conservative up north, say in the suburbs of Philadelphia or in Los Angeles or Chicago, uh, and you had nobody. You had a hostile bishop and a hostile uh, colleagues. You could you some places you were kicked out of the church, and then you and your colleague, you and your congregation moved out of the building and went to a uh, rent started renting facilities. Or in other places, you were able through religious uh, lawsuits to keep your building because you held the title. And so we've been going through an ongoing civil war that has now settled down into two Anglican uh, bodies in this country with a very, with a small remnant of conservatives in the Episcopal church. That's almost geographically driven and this national body uh, that is almost of all, not all like mine, but they can have what we call Anglo Catholics, people who are more attracted to the traditional liturgical side to evangelicals, to even charismatics, people who you couldn't tell were Pentecostals, except they, if they had a collar on. So, yeah, so my daughter, my daughter's in the Anglo-Catholic, more very, very traditional um, stream of Anglicanism, and uh, that's, uh, you know, been wonderful for her and faith renewing. But Anglicans, you know, there are different, definitely different expressions of the Anglican way. Um, so was the, the, the departure of many of those bishops from the, the Episcopal Church, did that come as a result of the, um, b- the Bishop Robinson situation? And m- maybe we should briefly touch on that because that was sort of a, a watershed moment, it sounds like. Gene Robinson uh, was elected to be Bishop of New Hampshire. Bishop Robin, uh, Gene, uh, I know Gene, he is a partnered gay man. He had been married uh, to his wife. He divorced her and came out as a homosexual after he was ordained as a priest. And he went to work in the Diocese of New Hampshire and was elected by the people in that state to be their bishop, who were Episcopalians. In 2003, after the election, this was brought to the convention of the Episcopal Church, which meets every three years, and the bishops uh, and the delegates were asked to ratify this. And the conservatives say, we cannot have this man be bishop. It's well and good that the people of New Hampshire believe he is called, but we understand a bishop not to be bishop of a specific locale or place, but a bishop of the universal church. And he cannot be accepted because he's living a a life that is openly sinful and he is promoting teachings that are contrary to scripture and we can't have this. And the leader of that uh, group was the Bishop of Pittsburgh, Bob Duncan. Uh, And Bob and Jean actually were classmates together in seminary, so they'd known each other by that time for 30 years. It's a very small world at the end of the day. And well... At a close vote, Gene Robinson was uh, allowed to be a bishop. And then immediately an emergency meeting of all the archbishops around the world was called in London. And they gathered and they said, look, you cannot go through with this. This will shatter, tear the fabric of the communion because a bishop is a bishop not of a place, but of a bishop of the universal church. And this man 
can't be. Well, the Episcopal Church went ahead anyway, saying that it had the autonomy and the right to do so. And within a few years, by about 2008, dioceses such as Pittsburgh, um, Fort Worth, Texas, um, Quincy, Illinois, they began to vote San Joaquin, California. They're, they, as diocese, voted to leave the Episcopal Church. Some were successful, and, but some were unsuccessful based on state laws. So the Illinois diocese and the Texas diocese could leave, while the California and the Pennsylvania diocese had to stay because of local state laws governing religious institutions. So it, it, it's, it's been a very expensive, very bitter, very unhappy time for the Episcopal Church. And to be perfectly frank, in my congregation, where people, nobody is from this part of Florida, everybody moves here when they retire, or they're a farmer, uh, they're not really interested in these issues. They're interested in salvation. They're interested in knowing Jesus Christ. Um, I had a parishioner's uh, child die of uh, fentanyl poisoning from an overdose uh, this past weekend. That is, you know, inflation, the drug problem, kids not having meaningful uh, path forward in life. That is so much more important than what people are doing up in Manhattan or in San Francisco. Now, it's not theologically pure, but it's the work that I do every day of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, of meeting and helping the hurt, the poor, the lost. Mm -hmm. And when the church gets so political, I believe it's abandoning its calling to make disciples. That's so good. I think after this interview, everyone's going to wish that they lived in central Florida and had George as their priest. Well, you, you I'm have not a member of the Chamber of Commerce, but uh, <laughs> you, my wife doesn't sell real estate, so there's nothing. You have a wonderful uh, shepherding disposition that is lacking in, in so many um, evangelical churches at times. So let me, let's fast forward then. That's some good groundwork for how we got to the current reality. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the recent events at the Lambeth uh, conference because it circled back to this decision back in the late 90s, Lambeth 110. There was a resurfacing of this because, as was predicted, that the Anglican communion really has been torn apart it, to some degree um, in recent years. So walk us through, you know, what were the events leading up to this current conference and, and the role that the Global South played in that? There have been some conservative pan-Anglican groups formed over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, the two most notable are, it's called, the initials spell out the word GAFCON, Global Anglican Futures Conference. It was named after a gathering in Jerusalem about 12 years ago. And the other is the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans. A GAFCON is the more conservative in the sense that they will brook no compromise. So at this last conference, the bishops from Nigeria, Uganda, and Rwanda didn't go. Now, they happen to be the three largest provinces of the uh, Anglican Communion in terms of actual people on a Sunday. Now, there may be 28 million members of the Church of England, but only a million of them show up at church on Sunday. But there's 16 million Nigerians in church Anglican Nigerians in church every Sunday and equal many uh, Ugandan Anglicans and Rwandans. They didn't come and they would have nothing to do with uh, those churches that they believe have violated uh, the gospel and violated uh, church tradition and teaching. The other group are also made up predominantly of uh, people from what we call the Global South, Singapore, Egypt. Uh, and they say, we shouldn't give up on the Anglican communion because we're the majority. And we want this gathering to reaffirm what we stand for. Well, at this gathering, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, said, I don't want to talk about this. I, And at the end, 
the, the people, the global South bishops, asked that they be allowed to have a vote up or down on reaffirming Lambeth 110. Justin Welby refused to allow that because he didn't want to create uh, a split. Well, the Global South bishops went ahead and independently did that. And Justin Welby, when they went ahead, said that I am not going to lead. I'm not going to take any disciplinary steps upon those who are in favor of gay marriage or those who are opposed to it. I'm just not going to lead. And so the conference technically ended on unity because they didn't do anything. They didn't leave with the blood dripping from each other's knives. But the, there's currently a vacuum because the Archbishop of Canterbury has decided and has stated he will not take the lead. And it's up to the individuals and churches and dioceses and parishes. So we're in a moment of chaos uh, frankly, ecclesiastically speaking, so that each side can say we're the true church um, when in reality, uh, I think I know who the true church is, but there I'm displaying my uh, bias. But, but. Um, there we go. Okay. Sorry, a little delay. I'm here at the office. Bob's at home. Uh, so we're about halfway through the, the interview and hopefully you're enjoying this. I think what's interesting uh, and I'm going to go to the to the some of the comments on the chat here is that uh, he did all this setup, you know, from what happened in the, the 90s and, um, you know, the the adoption of Lambeth 110, which is uh, you can just Google it and, and see the statement. I put a link to it in the chat if you want to look for that. But it's a fairly straightforward affirmation of the traditional position on on sexuality and. I think what was interesting, though, was was his his observations that, you know, the traditional position was in the majority at the time, um, but they kind of knew that the more liberal progressive position was going to keep coming for them and they were going to keep pressing it. And I think that this dynamic um, is very common because the conservatives you know, are the ones that are being forced to give ground. We see this in a lot of other denominations that are having this conversation. There was a commenter on the YouTube chat about the United Methodists going through similar issues right now. And that's absolutely right. And and now what's happened is that while the traditional position was in the majority in the late 90s, now it is a very small, tiny minority that's left in the Episcopal church. And um, so there's been these offshoots, but what I think is interesting is the role that the global South is now playing in forcing the West um, to press the matter, to, to continue to have the conversation about traditional marriage. And, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. You'll hear us talk about it, that really the issue isn't just traditional marriage. We're not trying to isolate out homosexuality as being some sin that's different than other sins. It's just, it's symbolic. It's it's a microcosm of the larger issue of, do we see the Bible as being authoritative? Do we see the Bible as being the truly authoritative um, a, a guide for our lives and, and our beliefs? So this this is the issue, and I, I think it's just such an interesting story that the global South is not going to be pushed around by the affluence of the West or our progressive ideology, and I'm grateful for that. I think that this ought to inspire us who are um, trying to remain biblically faithful to the historic Christian faith to stand strong. Because when we look at the issue globally speaking, um, our position is actually in the majority. It doesn't seem like it is because we're very much in the minority in the microcosm of where we live. But if we look at it globally, um, a much different picture emerges. So, yes. Some good comments. Uh, let me see here. 
Uh, the issue of property ownership was one that um, Susanna and I think and one other commenter brought up on on YouTube, and it really seems to be an issue of um, the 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 laws in the local area, the state laws about whether or not churches had to give up their their property and and all of that in the transition. So, okay, we got we're about halfway. I'm going to go back out to watch the rest of my conversation with Father George Conger. Here it is. So when the, it sounds like the, the, the bishops from the Global South were really trying to come at it of like, hey, let's not break away quite yet. Let's try to work toward reform, work toward um you know, because we're in the we're in the numbers majority here, and and just to just to kind of put some some real numbers on that, I I read through your article on Anglican Inc. Where you, uh, I think you're the author on this article, where you the um, it was a press release of uh, you know just some of these numbers of the global South. I mean, when we look at you know Kenya has you know almost a half a million. Uh, members the sudan has a million the south sudan has four million um you know all told it's almost eight million uh members you know together for the whole church of england but when you look at or the whole anglican communion but when you look at the church of england at church of ireland you know looking at more in the western um memberships the, those numbers are fairly low yes they um it is uh europe for all denominations uh catholics lutherans independents in europe is battling secularism and the rise of militant islam australia is battling secularism as is canada the united states there's certain parts of the country I, i'm thinking like Seattle or the Boston area, uh, where religion isn't an important aspect of people's lives. I'm in the Bible Belt here. It's a major, major factor of life. Uh, um, so we have, of course, of our geographic uh, areas, but the, the, there's a saying that demography is destiny. Who has the most children? who continues to grow within a two or three generations will run the show. And we're seeing that happen where the Church of England, most of the Episcopal Church, the Canadian churches, they're not reproducing themselves. Um, if you look at statistics, such as how many baptisms you have, how many marriages you have, when the leading statistic is how many people you bury, not how many people you baptize, uh, it's telling you that you're going in the wrong direction. Um, with And so I'm ultimately optimistic that in 30, 40, 50 years, those people who have chosen a path that is aligned with the, the culture, they will be, they'll be gone. And those who basically step out of the culture and seek to follow God's will as expressed in the Bible, we'll, we will still be here and we shall flourish. Um, the other thing I think that's so wonderful and opportunity is that about half the people in my congregation, no, maybe three quarters, didn't start out as Episcopalians. They moved to this part of Florida, church shopped, and they, and they heard the Bible preached. Uh, maybe they liked me or maybe I wasn't, so bad that I drove them away. But, and this is common in this part of the world where people move down here. It's common in Texas and other Sunbelt areas. People church shop. And those churches that grow are those that speak and teach and uh, offer, you know, a spirit-filled faith that focuses on the works and person of Jesus Christ and how it can change your life. So, I'm ultimately, I'm very optimistic. Do you, do you think that the global South will, I think this is what I hear you saying is that eventually 
those numbers as those numbers continue to rise, that that's going to overtake the West in terms of influence and shaping the future of Anglicanism and that that the, glo the those global South churches and bishops could in a way end up acting in a very key role of, of rescuing um, the West from all our foolishness in, in going down these other kind of novel theological paths that really the global South is, is the future and they will be the ones that will help us preserve the faith. In broad strokes, yes. And this has already happened within the United States when, when we had all these splits and schisms, bishops from Africa came over and provided oversight and leadership to all these clergy until they were able to form a new province called the Anglican Church in North America. So the Africans from Rwanda, Uganda, Nigeria have already ridden in uh, to save the day from, for local uh, churches. But in a, in a bigger picture, um, eventually I see that happening where the global South will produce uh, leaders not only of uh, spiritual power, but theological acumen. And we're seeing it in places that uh, were slightly unexpected. In other words, Singapore uh, and Chinese, you know, Chinese members of the Chinese diaspora in Singapore and Southeast Asia, many of them are Anglicans and they are bringing an intellectual rigor to the church that used to be claimed only by the scholars and, oh, I don't know, Yale and Oxford and places like that. But the kicker, but the, uh, the monkey wrench in all this is money. Uh, the Episcopal church has billions in assets investments, stocks, you know, a great deal of real estate under the skyscrapers in Manhattan. The Church of England has billions of dollars. And the church in South Sudan, uh, they can't afford to, sometimes you read that they haven't been able to pay the clergy for six months. Uh, so money, and there are, the corruption is a dated fact of life uh, in many parts of the world, not only in the United States, but in countries where the rule of law isn't as strong as it could be. So you've got bad bishops in the global South who steal or who take money and from Western churches, liberal sources, and basically at these conferences follow the Western line and then they go home and do what keeps their local parishioners happy. So I guess when the money runs out, uh, that will sort of end the last vestige of influence. But here again, my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit will revise and uh, revitalize and create revival in the churches of the West, in the churches in Florida, New York, California, England. Um, now, that's got nothing to do with how smart I plan or how much work we do or whether we can get Franklin Graham to come to our town. It's an action of the spirit moving in the hearts of believers. And we just have to pray for that to happen. And I think it will. I really do think it will. Do you think that there is a form of, for lack of a better term, kind of colonization that happens from the West because of our, our wealth that does i don't know this this is going to sound kind of wicked but that that there's a there's an idea of being able to control these bishops in poorer countries through the wealth and have you ever seen like that even pressuring the doctrine or to certainly okay certainly uh in 1998 i shared a taxi uh with the bishop of washington dc a very wealthy diocese. That's where the National Cathedral is in Washington. It's the big, big place where they have the funerals with the presidents and everything. And this was after the votes on homosexuality. And he was livid because he said, we give so much money to the Church of Uganda and look what they've done to us. We're going to cut them off without a cent. And 
I'm listening and just nodding because I'm I was in my early 30s and you know you you don't talk back you just listen but you know and what did they did they cut off the money uh because they didn't because the Ugandans didn't do what they were supposed to do money is used as a weapon it and it's not just the church uh uh the current the under the Obama administration and under the Biden administration aid in Africa is contingent upon supporting gay rights so for instance in Ghana uh the united you know the european union and the us have uh said that unless you change the laws that make uh sodomy i hate to use that word but they're called the sodomy laws that homosexual practice is illegal as just as we had up in the united states up until about 20 odd years ago in many states unless you ditch those laws we're not going to give you any money we're not going to support your your need to build power plants or dams or roads and so these small african countries primarily uh if they want aid have to do these things to please their masters in the west and that happens on the church in other words well you want to send these five fellows to get advanced degrees in the united states or in europe that's fine but we want to make sure that they're properly indoctrinated so that they go back home uh, teaching, you know, critical race theory and uh, all these latest woke things. And so it, 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 the funny thing is that people are, some churches are no longer sending from Africa to their, their brightest students to Europe or America. They're sending them to South Korea or Singapore or, or Sydney, Australia, places where they can get just as good an education, but not come back, uh, with the craziness that is part of um, American culture today, so that I hate men. Men are fallen. Men are cruel. Men are wicked. And if you tempt people, a good many of them will fall for the temptation. Just because you're a member of the trade union and have a piece of plastic around your neck doesn't mean you're a a great guy. <laughs> so you you feel optimistic. Um, right now about, you know, where the global South is going and, and their, you know, where, the, where their stand is. And it, they're, they were instrumental at the Lambeth Conference, the most recent one, in really trying to force the conversation about homosexuality. And, and really, the umbrella issue there isn't just about homosexuality. It's about keeping with the historic Christian faith, what Christians have always believed in what is clear in scripture and tradition and reason so i i don't i'm uncomfortable pinning this solely on homosexuality because at the end of the day that's not really it it's really is the bible trustworthy and true do we believe the bible if we do then we need to live out what christ and what paul and what the apostles and disciples teach us um in my work as a journalist uh, for in the church over these past 30-odd years, 20-odd years, um, I've got to know many of these Global South leaders very well. And some very powerful things have occurred where um, at the 1998 Lambeth Conference, uh, at in the middle of it, there was a terror bombing uh, in uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and then one in, in Nairobi. And the uh, Global South bishops called for a prayer vigil and that night. And it happened to be the same night as different, different groups of bishops held dinner parties and parties. And I remember sitting in a chapel with about 400 men uh, and maybe 200 women, their wives or people, and just praying. Some people were praying in tongues, others in uh, their native languages. And in the background, I could hear the clink of cocktail glasses and the uh, music of a party. So that the difference was that the, the, the power of Christ revealed through prayer, revealed through, through fellowship, was such immense, so immense. I, I, 
it's hard to describe when you're aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit amidst the people. Um, if you remember the movie Dr. Zhivago, uh, Dr. Zhivago, there's a scene where the peasants march up the streets to the uh, to a great hotel where the aristocrats are dancing and the aristocrats look out in the snow at the peasants and you know that revolution is coming. Well, in many ways, that's the situation in the Anglican world. The decadent aristocrat... Uh, Alcohol is an issue in the global South. Most of them are teetotalers. Um, divorce and remarriage. Uh, if you get divorced and you're at fault in the global South, you will lose your ministry. No questions about it. In the West, we have uh, the Archbishop of Wales. The chief Anglican in Wales is divorced and remarried, and he was at fault in his divorce. That's inconceivable. In other words, issues of life um, that are driven by our understanding of Scripture, what God expects of us, that path towards personal holiness as we seek to emulate Jesus. That's what's driving the global south. And they're also seeing God's works made manifest. So how can you not be optimistic when you in your own life experience the power of Christ so often? Um, as opposed to being part of a, an institution, uh, you know, you know, it's like like IBM or General Electric. You know, yeah. I, I, hate, I hate to be that that silly, but we're talking about how can you not be an optimistic when you are worshiping our risen Lord Jesus Christ, who has given me every every gift in this world, every confidence, every knowledge of salvation that I'm called to share with people. Why do I want to mess around with, you know, pronouns or mosquito nets for Africa or, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and all that stuff or the climate change? Yeah, 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 it's all important, but salvation is so much more. Yeah. And that global South, whether they be Anglo-Catholics, whether they be evangelicals, whether they be Pentecostal or charismatic, all seem to carry that burden to tell the world about Jesus Christ that many in the West have lost. That's so good. I, I love how you painted that picture. Um, well, as we kind of come to a close, just one more question, because, you know, I'm moving in a lot of evangelical kind of Baptist Presbyterian spaces. Those are a lot of the people that will be listening to this podcast. Um, as we're seeing the creep of progressive ideas um, being com coming into our churches and, and institutions, what advice could you give us? Like, like you, you went, you, you're about 30 years ahead of us. I feel like in the conversation of, you know, where this goes, you went to the, you're at the end of the road. We're kind of, you know, on the way. What, advice might you offer us uh in where we are in that journey trust god hmm. trust god that he shall provide um stand fast in the faith don't compromise what you know to be true to make other people happy the saddest thing is to lie to people about sin because you're you're facilitating their eternal, losing their eternal soul. I, I hate to be that hard-nosed, but when you compromise the message of Jesus Christ so as to be polite company, you're, you're facilitating the collapse of people's faith. Um, we don't have many young people in this community, uh, and we don't have that many young people in church, but I try to do a lot of work with kids outside of our church, and they're so desperate to hear the truth. They don't want to be humored. They don't want to be told, uh, yeah, it's okay to sleep around. Yeah, it's okay to do this and do that. Because they know, they, they see that that doesn't work. And they want to know what the truth is. And the truth, I believe, is salvation through Jesus Christ. And when you begin to water down that message, doesn't mean you have to be nasty and hard-nosed and, 
uh, be unpleasant to people, but just respond in love to these things and base it on where you're coming from, which is the Bible. And don't allow these people to say, oh, well, Paul didn't know what a homosexual was, this and that. that you know, modern scholarship has put all of that liberal nonsense to, you know, to bed. That's, that's nonsense. They no longer argue on the biblical lines. They just argue on the sociological lines. Hold fast to the Bible. Hold fast to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And just in America, plan on being a holy remnant that eventually God will gather in. That's so good. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciated this conversation. You bring such valuable information and your experience is incredibly unique. Thank you for your service to the body well, of Christ there. Yeah, let, go ahead. Let me just say, just because I had a service earlier, just because I'm wearing one of these, I don't want people to immediately tune me out uh, because we... Uh, to so much that those who traditional believers in the Bible form circular firing squads, where if you're not exactly like me and, you know, sign off on the Synod of Dort or this or that, we won't talk to each other. We've got to get, we've got to be nice to Catholics, the Orthodox, everybody, because this I, battle I is real. Yeah. And that's really um, a lot of the work that I do on this podcast is, is helping people understand the Orthodox Catholic faith, you know, that there is, uh, that we can be that home, holy remnant and the historic Christian faith and that that touches, you know, across traditions. And that's a lot of the work that I do here on the podcast. So that's a good word. And uh, I think that you'll find uh, some new friends as a result of this conversation. Thank oh, you so much, George. Thank you. And may God give you joy. Oh, thank you so much. This has just been such a blessing. Thank you for your time. I know you don't do very many interviews like this, but I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care and God bless. Thank you so much. All Glad right. to be here. Okay. That was the Reverend George Conger, everyone from Central Florida. I hope you enjoyed the, the conversation. And, you know, the point he was making there at the end, I thought was really interesting about being the holy remnant. And, you know, we might not always think about, you know, sometimes we, we really camp out on all of our differences as Christians, but I'll tell you, um, I have a lot more in common with a traditional Catholic or a conservative Orthodox Christian than I do with a progressive evangelical. Um, there's a lot more that unites us. And, you know, I don't think that um, when, you know, if if our government were to ever turn on us and, and start, um, you know, the real heavy work of persecution against Christians, I, I don't think they're going to ask us, like, are you reformed? Or are you a charismatic? Like, I don't think that's what their their biggest issue is going to be. They, if you talk to any secular person, unchurched person, uh, they see us as being all the same. If you hold to traditional marriage, if you're pro life, if if you hold to the Bible as being authoritative for your life, they don't really care if you believe in believers' baptism or baby baptism, like that's just not going to be their jam of how they're going to differentiate us. So there is a sense in which, you know, we have to figure out, um, and I think that this will gradually happen of what unites us as Christians, things like the Trinity, the incarnation, the atonement of Christ, um, that Jesus is coming again. And these are the big themes that I often talk about on my channel. So it's, I hope you enjoyed the discussion with George and uh, got some good information about it. And, and that you'll, you'll remember, like we are part of a big story. We are a global religion that crosses languages and cultures and ethnicities. And so don't get stuck in your little enclave of where you are and think, you know, I'm so alone and I'm, you know, I, I, there's so few faithful Christians where I am in my sphere. I want you to remember to think bigger, to think more globally, to think more historically, that you are part of 
uh, uh, God's big story that he is working out among his people even today. The universal church, the invisible church is a global thing. It's one of the unique aspects of our faith. So don't get so narrow-minded and, and closed in to think that you are alone. No, you're not. I know it may seem like it where you are, but you are part of something much, much bigger. That is all for tonight. Make sure to like the show, share the show. Thank you so much for your support and making this podcast possible. Good night and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.